This is Rachel Fields with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Evers is not endorsing any candidates in the Democratic primary for U.S. Senate to replace Republican Senator Ron Johnson. Evers says he's sitting out in order to have a robust primary to beat the incumbent, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Governor Evers' lieutenant governor, Mandela Barnes, is running in that race. The primary will take place August 9th, with the winner facing Johnson in the general election this fall. Greenlight Metals, a mining company based out of Toronto, plans to drill for gold and copper in two northern Wisconsin counties. Greenlight Metals would be the first to mine metals such as gold and copper in Wisconsin since the 1997 shutdown of the Flambeau Mine, which lent to the moratorium on sulfide mining. The moratorium was repealed in 2017 by a Republican-controlled state legislature. Although the Canadian mining company has an exploratory license, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources, or DNR, requires additional approvals and possible permits before the company begins drilling, reports the Associated Press. An off-duty police officer in Kenosha was caught on camera putting his knee on the neck of a 12-year-old girl after a fight. School officials have released redacted footage of the incident, which occurred earlier this month. The video shows one Kenosha police officer appearing to hold his knee on a student's neck for around 30 seconds, before handcuffing her and escorting her out of the cafeteria. The student's father is now calling for criminal charges to be brought against the officer for using a restraining technique that was banned last year. The Associated Press reports that the officer is no longer employed with the school, but does still work for the Kenosha Police Department. Dane County's number of fatal crashes spiked in 2021, according to a report from the county's Traffic Safety Commission. Last year saw 40% more crashes than averages from the last five years. The report identifies two main factors behind the spike, speeding and alcohol or drug use. The county will put four task forces to work to find ways to address the spike in crashes and their underlying factors, reports the Capital Times. A months-long search for Madison's next fire chief has come to an end. The Madison Police and Fire Commission, an independent statutory body in charge of hiring and discipline for the city's fire and policy services, announced their selection of Chris Carbon as Madison's next chief. Carbon has served in the Madison Fire Department since 1999 as a firefighter, paramedic, lieutenant, and training officer. Current Fire Chief Stephen Davis retires at the end of March. He announced his retirement last October. Students at La Follette High School walked out last Wednesday in support of a trusted staff member placed on administrative leave. Many of the walkout participants were students of color who depended on Tutankhamun coach Assad as one of the only faculty members they could trust. The Capital Times reports that school officials would not share with the protesters why Assad was on leave, explaining that it was a personnel matter. And finally, a reminder that in-person early voting for the 2022 spring election begins tomorrow. A reminder that when voting, you do need to bring an acceptable ID, such as a driver's license, and will need to register if you haven't already done so. In-person early voting locations can be found throughout the city of Madison. 
All the locations can be found on the City of Madison's website. If you live outside of Madison, check with your local municipal clerk. And if you're voting via absentee ballot, make sure to get those in the mail soon so they can be counted by Election Day on April 5th. And now, on to today's top stories. WORT producer Nate Weggehout continues our spring election coverage with a trip to Oregon to look at the candidates running for the Dane County Board of Supervisors race in District 31. The Dane County Board of Supervisors, District 31, is located around the village of Oregon, down to the border of Greene County to the south. The two candidates running for the seat are incumbent Jerry Bollig and Todd Cleaver. Bollig has served on the board since 2012, after working as an accountant for the Alliant Energy Center since the 1970s. Bollig has lived in his district for over 70 years, his entire life, and says he knows the people in the area and the issues affecting them. I'm running for re-election because, uh, again, I've lived my entire life in my district, and I've continued to stay here because I think Dane County is an excellent place to live. It affords so many opportunities for employment and, and relaxation. It's just, it's hard to find a place better. And I want to do my part to keep it that way and hopefully I can make it a little better. Challenger Todd Cleaver worked with the County Highway Department and has also lived in Oregon his whole life. Cleaver is no political newcomer and ran against Bollig for the seat in 2020. He says that after retiring, he decided to run for the board to address the county's financial woes. I see a lot of wasted money that's going on here. Could be in various departments, but We can start with uh, public works departments. I know we're looking at a new jail right now, and I'd like to make sure that that gets done correctly. Uh, We have several public works department projects that aren't finished and they don't have a timeline or any completion. But this does not mean that Cleaver is against the building of a new jail. He says the building of a new jail is one of his biggest passions and that we should build the jail with an eye on the future. I think by turning down the extra money, I think that's a mistake. Costs are only going to rise, and the longer we hold off on that, the more they're going to rise. Now, I don't believe there's any public works project in Dane County that we are responsible for that hasn't come back and asked for extra money, so we might as well figure out that we're gonna, they're going to be back at the county board looking for more money to finish this project off. I say let's do it right the first time so we don't have to keep coming back. Bollig says that up until two weeks ago, the jail was also his biggest priority. But after the board voted to approve additional funding for a new plan for a jail, he says that he has turned his focus towards housing. Biggest issues faced in my district is just housing. Because it is a desirable area, and Oregon is part of the desirable area in Dane County, which is the entire county, Um, It just, there isn't enough housing, and the biggest issue, too, is that it's just not as affordable as it should be. The prices have continued to escalate, which makes it hard, and and along with that, uh, when housing prices escalate, so do rents. 
Bollig says that he is also passionate about the quality of the groundwater in his district. He says that while his district may not experience the same water quality issues that Madison does, he is still committed to protecting Oregon's water. Cleaver is also passionate about the water in his district, but he is more concerned with too much water. He says that he hopes to address the flooding in the city, particularly around Swan Pond in Oregon. In 2019, the city experienced significant flooding in the groundwater table due to years of heavy rainfalls. Both Bollig and Cleaver say that their professional experiences set them apart. Bollig says that as someone who worked for the Alliant Energy Center for many years, he knows and has connections to many people throughout the county. But Cleaver says that, with his decades of work with the county highway division, he too knows what people in his district want. Cleaver says that he respects Bollig and doesn't disagree with how he represents the district, but says that he has personally seen the problems in Dane County. The spring 2022 election takes place on April 5th. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie Help. From pandemic-induced supply chain woes to climate change, Wisconsin's grain farms have had a difficult few years. A new initiative hopes to help those farmers build environmentally and economically resilient operations. Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection has more. A new program is seeking to help Wisconsin's grain farmers build more environmentally and economically resilient operations. The Midwest Grain Resource and Immersive Training, or GRIP, program aims to bolster the Midwest's grain shed by increasing the number and diversity of small and mid-sized farms across the region growing food-grade grains. Christine Johnson is with the Wisconsin-based Michael Fields Agricultural Institute, which oversees the program. She says strengthening farmers' resiliency benefits local consumers down the supply chain. So having that regional food system established and strong will just help both the farmer and our communities alike going forward. According to the U.S. Agricultural Census, which is conducted every five years, Wisconsin gained small and large farms from 2012 to 2017, but lost more than 4,200 mid-sized farms. The GRIP program includes a year of paid training and education programs for current and aspiring grain farmers. Applications for the program are open through the end of March. At least a third of the program's open spots will be reserved for farmers who are women. Johnson, who's a farmer herself, says the initiative includes programming specifically to support gender-specific barriers for female farm operators and entrepreneurs. We're also holding space for other communities, such as Black and Indigenous farmers, and really making a point to decrease barriers within our region for all farmers that want to achieve success. Johnson says that USDA census data and state grain farmer training surveys suggest that only 15 to 20 percent of grain farmers in the Midwest identify as female. Per the 2017 Ag Census, about 35 percent of all farm operators in the state were women, up 16 percent from 2012. For the Wisconsin News Connection, I'm Jonah Chester. Find our eight trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
After the tragic suicide of a UW-Madison graduate student in 2019, Wisconsin State Journal reporter Kelly Meyerhofer began to look more closely at the incident. She found that faculty abusing their students, or academic bullying, was more prevalent at the university than anyone had realized. Last week, Meyerhofer published her series on the issue in the Wisconsin State Journal, and earlier today, she spoke with WORT producer Nate Weggehout about the series and what she had found. I'm on the line with Kelly Meyerhofer with the Wisconsin State Journal. Kelly, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. So just to begin, what started you down this path of looking into academic bullying at UW-Madison? Why did you start looking into this issue? Yeah, I mean, uh, it started back uh, in 2019. I um, had put in a a records request uh, to the university, and I got back this report um, that, uh, you know, seemed to indicate there was a a suicide um, of a, a graduate student who worked in an engineering lab where the the work environment was just really toxic for for that student. So I wrote a story about that, and I, you know, it was a. I, I kind of thought it was a kind of a tragic uh, one-off situation. But almost immediately after that story published in 2019, I got so many other emails, calls, people saying, "Look into this professor. Look into this lab." Um, so I started, uh, you know, putting in more records requests and. Um, I started getting a lot of those reports back right around March 2020. <laughs> um, that kind of the pandemic derailed this this project that just published over the weekend. Um, but I finally uh, had, had enough time to 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 put it together and just look at cases beyond um, the lab of this one student where where uh, a student died by suicide and uh, just this broader uh, academic issue of bullying on campus. So obviously you've written multiple lengthy articles on this, but just sort of broadly, what did you find in your investigation? What constitutes as academic bullying and how prevalent was it from your research? Yeah, I mean, the university defines academic bullying. I mean, they actually, their their formal name for it is hostile and intimidating behaviors, and they define it as unwelcome behavior so pervasive or severe that it impairs another person's ability to carry out their work responsibilities. Uh, it can take a bunch of different forms, you know, shouting, screaming at someone repeatedly, um, threatening them, uh, you know, with uh, pulling their funding, um, giving them, you know, way too much work to do in the amount of time that they have. There's a lot of different forms that it can take on. Um, and, and some actions do fall into a gray zone, and that's what makes these investigations kind of kind of complicated and messy. Um, but what I was able to find through the investigation was um, eight Eight cases, aside from the professor who led the lab where the student died by suicide, I found eight other cases in the last six calendar years that um, were investigated for for bullying behavior. And with those eight other professors there, were the students aware of this before going into it? Did these professors have any sort of reputation or how did how did the students know this outside of, you know, experiencing it for themselves? Yeah, I mean, a lot of students I talk to who, who end up in these, these situations, some of them say that, you know, when they first joined the lab or when they were thinking of joining it and just, like, talking to, to people, they, they were warned, like, don't, don't join the lab. It's, it's not a good situation. So, I mean, that's sort of like a whisper network is, is what it's referred to among grad students. Um, and I did find that in some cases, yeah. And how did this 
academic bullying affect the students? What were some of the consequences? Yeah, I mean, interviewing with students is kind of soul-crushing, uh, you know, just hearing what they've gone through. I talked to several who who contemplated suicide, um, you know, or many of them started to see a counselor. Um, you know, they just have, have horrible stories about just, you know, being yelled at repeatedly day after day, saying their work is worthless, saying they're worthless. Um, you know, some of them, like, uh, experienced career repercussions um, if, if their professor, like, gave them only negative references so they couldn't get a job somewhere else if they tried to leave or if they tried to graduate. Um, there's just kind of a wide range of effects that, that um, students have when they're in these situations. And were you able to talk to any of, of these professors? Yeah, I talked to, to one professor who, who, who uh, did agree to an interview, um, and you know, he, he admitted to some of the behavior, like shouting at students, but um, he's still working at the university, and he, he says that he no longer um, you know, shouts at students. He did deny some of the behaviors that, that students told investigators about, such as you know, threatening to pull their funding or threatening to delay their, their, their degrees so that they could graduate and move on. He denied some of, some of that behavior. So, um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting to, to hear from him and get his perspective. And you said that he is still working there, but what about the other professors that you looked into? Was there any action taken against them? That's a good question. Uh, of the cases I've looked at, you know, several are still working at UW. Four, four of the, the nine cases that I looked at are still working at UW. In some of those cases, uh, administrators put in sort of like protections, uh, like additional training or lab monitoring um, that they say will help ensure that the, the environment doesn't, doesn't become negative. Um, some of the employees did leave for other jobs. Uh, I found the case of an engineering professor who, um, you know, is now working at the University of Pennsylvania, leading a lab there. Uh, another professor who um, was kind of essentially forced to resign from UW because of the investigation, but she's still leading a lab for the, the Madison office of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And just sort of finally, were you able to figure out or find out what students should do if they find themselves in this sort of situation? What, what should a student do? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, uh, UW has been pretty, uh, pretty uh, proactive in, in trying to outline, like, here's resources and here's what you can do. There's several different reporting options. You can sort of informally report, which means you might talk to the department chair or a graduate uh, student advisor or someone um, and just say, like, you know, I'm having concerns. You don't have to file, like, a formal complaint where, where they may know, you know, that, that you're the one with the grievance. Um, but, I mean, I've often found that, you know, to have any sort of real, real change, um, any sort of disciplinary action, it does seem to have to go through a, a formal complaint process because, you know, there has to be an investigation. So there, there are several different reporting options, and UW puts that on their website, which is something that a lot of other universities don't have. So that's good that they have those resources for students. And Kelly, do you have just any final thoughts on this investigation that you'd like to share with me? Oh, wow. Well, this reporting started before the pandemic. So it's, um, it's been a long time coming. And, uh, you know, the response has been really great. Uh, I've heard from a lot of people on campus saying thank you for writing about this. I mean, it's not not an easy thing for, for students to, to share with publicly. Uh, you know, it's not 
these cases are not, uh, you know, really casting the university in a super flattering light, but the fact that there's, there's conversation about it and everyone, you know, says we need to stop this sort of behavior is, is good. I mean, I think recognizing that there is a problem is, is the first step towards, towards addressing it. I've been talking with Kelly Meyerhofer, higher education reporter with the Wisconsin State Journal, about her series on academic abuse at UW-Madison. You can read the whole series online at madison.com. Kelly, thank you again for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Nate. You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. We talk with a local children's theater company about a play on the Latino American experience. Bridging the Gap looks at how stalking manifests with celebrities in the age of social media. Harry Richardson looks back on the shock and awe campaign and the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2013. And we get two new movie reviews. Disney's Jungle Cruise, based on a popular Disney World ride, and The Outfit, a compelling gangster story. But now we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Thanks for joining us. Earlier this month, the Children's Theater of Madison began their newest show for children, called Calabasa Street. The show is one of the first Latinx-centered shows put on by the theater company, and aims to teach children about friendship, chance encounters, and piñatas. On last Friday's 8 o'clock buzz, guest host Peter Haney spoke with Araceli Aparza and Simona Simpkins with the theater company about the show. The show will continue to run through this coming weekend. Araceli and Simona, welcome to the 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you. Thank yes. you very much for having me. All right, so we are coming up to the end of the hour, but we want to get as much in as possible. What can you tell us about this play? Maybe, Uh, Simona, we'll start with you. Yes, awesome. Yes, this play is a wonderful, beautiful story of a Mexican-American family uh, growing up and living in Los Angeles, Um, specifically the story of one young child named Domingo uh, and his relationship, his friendship that he strikes up with really an unlikely character in his neighborhood who is viewed as being a bit of a Boo Radley character, if you will, um, just very scary, and um, people just don't know anything about this uh, this woman. They call her La Viuda, which means the widow, and so, of course, she dresses in all black, and it's kind of spooky to folks, and uh, the understa- misunderstanding really comes because the children in the neighborhood uh, develop a narrative that she's just very odd and weird and, and spooky and maybe even a little crazy. Um because she collects a lot of, dra- of garbage from uh, here and there across the neighborhood and takes it home, and no one really knows what happens with it. 
so this young boy ends up accidentally uh, getting to know uh, this this woman, La Viuda Martinez, and um, they strike up a friendship that ultimately changes both of their lives and transforms the trajectory of his family's life. Um, so it's a story of friendship and uh, understanding and overcoming one's fear of the unknown. Yeah. Sounds like a lot. Um, Araceli, you uh, helped the Madison Children's Theater get in touch with some kids from Lincoln Elementary. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes. So Lincoln Elementary is my other mother. <laughs> I totally remember going to school there as a young child in the south side of Madison. And yeah, we myself and another master, Piñata Maker Maestra Erika Castillo, She's an amazing pianta uh, maker. She pressed or pre-made 83 piñatas. I was simply there as a you know supporting teaching artist to help her <laughs> with all of her materials and you know help direct the kids. And we like you know just enthusiastically um, brought piñata making to three three uh, three four uh, classrooms. And all the kids, like, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. It was just a lot of fun. We talked about the origins of piñata. Do you know where piñatas originated from? I do not. Interestingly enough, it is China. It is not Mexico. Um, That is another cultural, uh, you know, product that we adopted, that Mexicanos adopted. And actually, piñatas were only for holidays. And then it became Americanized by utilizing piñatas for birthdays. And so we learned all these beautiful things about piñatas because piñatas is a central part of the scene, too. And so you'll see them as you come into the theater um, at my arts building this weekend. You'll see a display of, of a sampling of some of our piñatas that we made over with Lincoln Elementary. Sounds lovely. Uh, so is this the, the first time that uh, Children's Theater of Madison has done uh, a play with uh either by a, a Latinx playwright or with a Latinx cast? Well, yes. So this is this is definitely a, an, a piece that was very deliberately chosen so that uh, we could bring and invite more Latinx families uh, and children into the space of theater and uh, work that we're doing. So um, the beautiful thing about this work is that, um, you know, we're really prioritizing the needs and interests of the kids um, and that there is a need and interest for um, more um, BIPOC stories on stage. So I, um, I know for a fact that that is something that the children in our community are really looking for um, across the board. And so I think that it's a really beautiful thing that the Children's Theater of Madison uh, made a deliberate choice to, um, you know, to display uh, this or to produce this um, show and say, hey, we see you, Latinx families, and we are going to support you uh, and your interest in the arts. So really, in a way, this production was really uh, a way to use theater uh, to work towards social justice and to create programs that are combining art to open up our hearts uh, with information and, you know, dramaturgical work about Latinx families um, to open up our minds and then, you know, just having a conversation about the the struggles and the realities of growing up uh, Mexican American in in this in this country. Um, and so all of that really creates a plan of action for our communities to keep working towards 
uh, more representation of BIPOC bodies and stories on stage. So I really have to tip my hat to Children's Theatre of Madison for taking on this production and supporting it and working with um, our Latinx community. And it opened this past weekend, right? How's that? How, how's it been going? Really good. We've been seeing. I've been um, ushering and helping with just like, you know, checking in people. You have to have your you know vaccination cards as you come in. If you're adults, we're not checking children, but we mm-hmm. are checking adults. And so I've been helping with that and like just seeing. Oh my gosh! Just like Simona says, the kids are just you know. Disney vibes, they tell me, and they just, they really love just the storyline, and a lot of kids are just enjoying it, you know, I, I see this, you know, a group of us coming in, you know, a group of Latino families or black families or any kind of families coming in, and they are just really enjoying it on the way out, and there's, just, there's so much chatter about, like, who's Vicky Carr, you know, so there's, like, this intergenerational <laughs> aspect, right, and there's this beautiful intergenerational aspect to it that, you know, baseball, like, Okay, they saw like we don't know that a lot of Latinos play baseball. You know, we're like into baseball, and so it's algo, it's it's algo, it's algo muy bello. It's so such a such a beautiful experience for the whole family. Um, so, Araceli and Simona, I'd love to talk longer, but we're reaching the end of the program. So thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you. Yesterday was the anniversary of the start of the shock and awe campaign and the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2013. Feature contributor Harry Richardson compares that invasion to the Russian one in Ukraine, beginning with how the media portrayed the events at the time. At this hour, American and coalition forces are in the early stages of military operations to disarm Iraq to free its people, and to defend the world from grave danger. Yesterday, March 20th, marks the beginning of the U.S. land invasion of Iraq in 2003, despite the worldwide protests of 6 to 10 million people. But the mass killing of Iraqis had already started the day before with the mass air assault called shock and awe. After six weeks of invasion, when President George Bush spoke under a mission accomplished banner, Over 7,500 civilians had died. Up through October 2019, it is estimated that 200,000 civilians died from direct war-related violence, but the real number is likely much higher. Shock and awe used overwhelming military power and spectacular displays of force with the goal of paralyzing the enemy and destroying their will to fight. There was little regard for civilians. The reporting of shock and awe, especially by the major TV networks like CNN, was almost celebratory. CNN shots of Baghdad emphasized the explosions, but didn't talk about civilian casualties or the targeting of civilian infrastructure. This contrasts sharply with U.S. TV coverage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine happening now. Recently, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting, FAIR, a media watchdog group, compared the initial media coverage of the 2003 U.S.-Iraq war and today's Russian invasion of Ukraine. The U.S. media devoted only 8% of coverage 
to Iraqi civilians at the start of the U.S. invasion. In contrast, they've devoted 45% of coverage to Ukrainian civilians during a comparable period. Although the U.S. media has greatly increased their interviews of those directly impacted by the war, it provides heat but no light. Out of the 230 interviews in that first week of the Ukraine war, there was almost nothing discussed except personal experiences. Except for the 21 interviews, 17%, done with current or former government or military officials. This coverage makes the Ukrainians look like victims. Russian government sources appeared only four times, and about 20 other Russians. 80 sources were from the U.S. government. In effect, the U.S. media largely allows U.S. officials to frame the terms of the conflict. No sources questioned the U.S. role. Even more surprising, no sources discussed the dramatic impact of Western sanctions on Russian civilians. Interestingly, Russian public opposition to the Ukraine war now appears to be similar to U.S. public opposition to the Iraq war initially. A majority in each country supported their government's aggression at the start of both wars. Only around 25% opposed them. But when the U.S. invaded Iraq, the U.S. media devoted only 3% of coverage to American anti-war voices. While in the current Russian war on Ukraine, U.S. coverage gives the impression Russians oppose the war more than they actually do. Of the 20 Russian sources covered in FAIR's analysis of U.S. media coverage of week one of the war, 10 expressed opposition to the war. Polls show only one quarter of Russians opposed to the war, not the half portrayed in U.S. media. Disturbingly, race seems to be a factor in the coverage, as with this CBS News report by Charles Diagata. Ukraine, quote, isn't a place with all due respect, like Iraq or Afghanistan, that has seen conflict raging for decades. This is a relatively civilized, relatively European, I have to choose my words carefully here, too, city, where one wouldn't expect that or hope that that is going to happen. A Dutch peace group, PAX, issued a report in 2014 on the extensive use by the U.S. of depleted uranium, DU, in civilian areas in 2003. PAX got the info from the Dutch Ministry of Defense, which was concerned about the areas where their troops were stationed. They obtained the firing coordinates from the U.S. military. The report cites 10,000 DU rounds fired by U.S. jets and tanks. Most of them were fired in and around populated areas including Samoa, Nesira, and Basra. This is a small fraction of the total 300,000 DU rounds estimated to have been fired, the vast majority by U.S. forces. PAX estimates that there are more than 300,000 contaminated sites, which will cost at least $30 million to clean up. DU is a chemically toxic and radioactive heavy metal. The estimates of the total financial cost of the war are also enormous. According to Nobel Peace Prize winning economist Joseph Stiglitz and his co-author Harvard University government finance expert Linda Bilms in their book The Three Trillion Dollar War, to prevent needless civilian deaths, we need to rebuild that strong peace movement. But those are stories for another day. For WRT's The Past is the Past, I'm Harry Richardson. It's now 6.46 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
On today's Bridging the Gap, feature contributor Teresa Yen turns to social media and how it can be used by celebrities to weaponize fan bases and aid in stalking. In February, Kanye West took it to Instagram to express his opinion on his ex-wife Kim Kardashian's new boyfriend, Pete Davidson. He reposted a series of memes made by fans that opposed him and Davidson against each other, leading people to speculate whether he had posted them himself. Kanye confirmed that it was, in fact, him reposting the memes. Moreover, he continuously cut ties with people who supported Davidson and pitted his fanbase against Davidson. Kanye's display of animosity towards Davidson reflected his continuous harassment towards his ex-wife Kim. Kim also contacted Kanye, asking him to stop attacking Davidson. However, Kanye responded by saying he would do whatever it took to win her back and save his family. After a couple of days, Kanye deleted all the posts attacking Davidson and acknowledged that he had not been kind towards Kim and Davidson's relationship. Nevertheless, Kanye exhibited stalking behaviors that has threatened women's safety for decades. While his Instagram rampage seemed funny to bystanders, the fear that transpired for Kim and Davidson were very real. In this week's edition, we'll be exploring how the media has normalized stalking behaviors and why it's dangerous for the victims. This is Bridging the Gap, a weekly feature dedicated to exploring the connection and differences between generations. The Stalking Prevention Awareness and Resource Center defines stalking as, quote, a pattern of behavior directed at a specific person that would cause a reasonable person to fear for the person's safety or the safety of others, or suffer substantial emotional distress, end quote. Behaviors that constitute stalking include, quote, unwanted contact including phone calls, texts, and contact via social media, unwanted gifts, showing up or approaching an individual or their family and friends, monitoring, surveillance, property damage, and threats, end quote. Behaviors of stalking have long been normalized by society from a young age. The term social media stalking has been normalized by millennials and Gen Z alike as a way to find out information about someone through their internet presence. The dangers of stalking seem to be watered down when it's thrown around as a common phrase. Media portrayals of stalking has also long been romanticized in movies and TV shows especially in romantic comedies. A common romantic comedy trope often portrays a man who refuses to accept rejection from a woman, and through his inability to give up on his pursuit, the woman ultimately gives in and accepts his love. While the media wants us to think it's romantic, it often dismisses the woman's annoyance towards the unwanted advances and conveys the message that a woman's refusal is not to be taken seriously. In an interview with National Network to End Domestic Violence, University of Michigan senior researcher Dr. Julia Lipman notes why these portrayals are dangerous. She says, quote, Media teaches us what to think about the world. It's easy to say it's just harmless entertainment, and in some cases, it is. But if you keep getting the same messages over and over, even if you know what you're watching is fiction, it informs how you think about the real world." End quote. Popular Netflix series You aim to highlight just how dangerous these media messages can be. The show depicts a man who uses all of the common stalking tropes, such as following a woman to her house, gathering her personal information through the internet, and disguising himself to be the perfect man for the female protagonist. But instead of romanticizing his actions, the show lets us know just how creepy his actions are and that ultimately these actions end in violence against the victim. 
The host of The Daily Show, Trevor Noah, has recently spoken up about the Kanye and Kim situation. What I see from this situation, I see a woman who wants to live her life without being harassed by an ex-boyfriend or an ex-husband or an ex-anything. You may not feel sorry for Kim, you know, because she's rich and famous, because of the way she dresses, because she appropriates black culture, because she tells women they're lazy, because she broke the internet and then didn't put it back together, whatever, you hate her, whatever. But what she's going through is terrifying to watch, and it shines a spotlight on what so many women go through when they choose to leave. One of the most powerful, one of the richest women in the world, unable to get her ex to stop texting her, to stop chasing after her, to stop harassing her. Just think about that for a moment. Think about how powerful Kim Kardashian is, and she can't get that to happen. And all I'm saying about this story is, if Kim cannot escape this, Kim Kardashian, if she cannot escape this, then what chance do normal women have? Noah emphasizes that while people can argue that Kim Kardashian enjoys being in the spotlight and all the publicity she's getting, it doesn't take away from the fact that she is being harassed. Moreover, this situation should alert the public on how hard it is for women to leave toxic situations and that this is a phenomenon that needs to be changed. For Bridging the Gap and WORT News, I'm Teresa Yen. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new movies. Starting with a tropical trip, Disney's Jungle Cruise is based on the popular Disney World ride. And things get a little deceiving with The Outfit, a Game of Wits gangster story where not everything is as it seems. We're headed up river to Blagrimas de Cristal. We must secure our travel, come on! It's Nilo. Not a good time. My brother and I are looking for passage up river. Please go away. That was a clip from the trailer for Jungle Cruise, directed by Jama Koyatsera. It is inspired by the Disney Park theme ride of the same name, but is a surprisingly enjoyable movie anyway. The two main characters, Lily, Emily Blunt, and Frank, Dwayne Johnson, play well off each other in a film that has echoes of admittedly better films like Raiders of the Lost Ark or Romancing the Stone. The film has that retro vibe. It's set shortly before World War I. It opens with a stuffy young man, McGregor, Jack Whitehall, trying to convince a bored London History Society audience to loan him an arrowhead in their collection. The object is supposed to lead to the mythical tree of life deep in the Amazon. The audience is about to kick him out, but that's okay. He's only a diversion to give the plucky Lily time to find and make off with the arrowhead. She manages to do so just ahead of the villainous German prince, Joachim, a fun role for Jesse Plemons. He wants the tree's healing powers to help his side in the coming war. Lily and McGregor barely escape and head for the jungle. Their dubious guide is the pun-making hustler, Frank, the last independent boat operator at the edge of the jungle. He's in debt to Nilo, a good over-the-top role for Paul Giamatti, who owns all the other cruise boats in town. Nilo confiscates Frank's engine until Frank can pay him off. Frank's sketchy efforts to get his engine back get him mistaken for Nilo by Lily. The three, Frank, Lily, and reluctant McGregor, are soon on the run, not only from Nilo, but the more dangerous Prince Yakim. And a real adventure begins. None of this is very realistic, but it makes for a fun, light-hearted adventure movie, with a few surprises along the way to the predictable but pleasant ending. 
It would be fun to see on a big screen, but for now it's just on Disney+. Plus. It came out a while back, but I waited for that paywall to come down. Worth checking out for the fun villainous Plemons and Giamatti, and the enjoyable interplay by Blunt and Johnson. Next up, a highly rated 50s mystery crime thriller. What's it take, Francis? Three. I'm telling you, this is the truth. You want to survive the night? You look them dead in the eyes, and you pretend you're one of them. That was a clip from the trailer for The Outfit, co-written and directed by Graham Moore. This is a near-perfect, character-driven movie with twists and turns. It is one of the best movies I've seen in months. The film has a strong cast led by a remarkable performance by Mark Rylance as a British cutter, Leonard, in a 1956 Chicago mob-run neighborhood. Leonard is a quiet, unassuming man who just might be more than he seems to be. Our story opens with Leonard in his tailor shop, narrating how he sizes up customers. He notices how they hold themselves their place in the world, and their attitude about that place. He has also sized up his front desk assistant, Mabel, Zoe Deutsch, who plans to escape Chicago. The two are obviously fond of each other, but much is left unsaid. Leonard's quiet, deliberate movements as he makes his suits says a lot about him. Leonard has reoccurring visions of a fire, the significance of which comes out only gradually. He is one of those characters that is invisible to most people. His shop is also the letter drop for the local gang. Mabel notices Richie, Dylan O'Brien, the head gangster's son, but dislikes his associate, Francis, James Flynn. Richie is touchy and unsure of himself beneath his bravado. Francis is the loyal lieutenant of the headman Roy, a great Simon Russell. But things soon go awry and Leonard is caught in the middle. Francis rushes into the shop, dragging a wounded Richie, Francis arrogantly takes over the shop and strikes Leonard. Leonard and Francis put the bleeding Richie on the cutting table in the back room. Francis has to explain what is going on and the story gets more complex. There is a gripping scene midway through with Leonard and the crime boss Roy that makes the movie. All in all, a near-perfect character study with a great cast led by Rylands and Russell. Oh, and there's a nice cameo by Nikki Amuka Bird. I should mention the fine cinematography by Dick Pope and the noteworthy costume designs by Zach Posen and Sophie O'Neill. Well worth checking out. See it on the big screen if you can do so safely. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Emily Flick. Your reporter this evening was Jonah Chester from the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Peter Haney from the Friday 8 o'clock buzz, Harry Richardson, Teresa Yen, and Nicholas Leap for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. We have a correction to issue on this week's The Past Isn't Past, The U.S. invasion of Iraq began in 2003, not 2013, as I said earlier. I remember it well. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night. (laughs) 